midst of the drama of one of the most famous stories, uh, in, if not the most famous story in all of First Samuel, one of the most famous stories in uh, the entire Old Testament, and that's the story of David and Goliath. And I don't mean anything pejorative by story. It is most certainly history. Fact. So, what we have seen heretofore in, in 1 Samuel 17, of course, is David is sent on, on an assignment by his father to bring um, some supplies to his three oldest brothers who are on the front lines uh, against the Philistines. And, of course, um, there the Philistines have a champion, Goliath, who is uh, described as being over nine feet tall. And just by the sheer weight of his armor and his spear, we imagine that he is not just tall, skinny, but tall, strong, robust. This is a, a very large man, the likes of which uh, we probably don't have anything uh, in our present day. Now, he is taunting Israel, and Israel is cowering, and his taunts are actually religious taunts, uh, calling into question um, their God and asserting that he ought to serve the Philistines, that he ought to serve, that they ought to serve him instead of God. And so you have idolatry, you have blasphemy, you have all of this going on. Now, even if the other Israelites heard it as such, they didn't, they didn't perceive it theologically. They didn't perceive it in the sense of that, that God might, might take one of them and cause them to have victory over, over this Philistine simply on the basis of, of demonstrating his might. Only one of all of the men of Israel perceives things theologically in just this way, and that's David. So David, again, uh, you know, hears uh, of, of the, the Philistines' taunts firsthand. He questions the people about this. He questions the people as to, you know, Saul and, and what, what Saul's reward is for defeating this Philistine. Of course, what we're to see here is the great failure of Saul, that instead of offering a reward, it ought to be Saul himself who goes out and faces this giant. So there is certainly a note of tragedy here that we don't often consider in this story, and that is that David should not be the one who is there fighting this giant. It should be Saul, who in fact looks the kingly part, who stands, uh, you know, the rest of the men of Israel stand about up to his shoulder. So he is, in a sense, the giant of Israel and the champion of Israel and the king that the people wanted to go fight for them. And instead, he's sitting in the back, cowering, offering reward to whoever is brave enough to do the job he's supposed to be doing. Of course, here you see Saul's egotism in that he fears for himself. He doesn't trust God. Uh, that egotism, that cynicism, that pragmatism, um, where he's going to you know, pay someone else to do the job, all of these very poor characteristics we see in Saul coming manifest in this story. Saul, who is supposed to be doing it, doesn't do it. David, who by no means should be doing it, he's just a mere youth, ends up doing it. So the reversal theme of 1 Samuel continues. Now, as we see in verse 32, uh, David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Of course, Saul challenges David and tries to get David to doubt, just as he doubts. And that's really what transpires. David points out how, as a shepherd, the Lord has given him victory over lions and bears so that David can save his sheep. Even here you see David's humility, that he reckons these victories he's had against lions and bears not to his own account, but to the Lord's account. And then also you see that David perceives all of life theologically. His victory over these, over these uh, you know, lions and bears that have attacked his flock aren't just you know, due to his skill or due to chance. Uh, this is the Lord 
and the Lord's doing and the Lord's demonstration to David, uh, just precisely what the Lord is capable of through David's hands. So here's an encouragement for all of us to perceive our lives and perceive what even appear to be vocational challenges, everyday challenges, um, to view these things theologically and to see the Lord's hand in what he has brought us through and therefore to trust in him for whatever it is that we're facing, that he will see us through this as well. Of course, that takes on an ultimate and transcendent reality when we realize that, well, even when we face death and even when, when death finally takes us, even through this thing, it's, uh, God gives us the victory. He, he takes us right through the very heart of death as the cross of Jesus shows. We follow him right through the very heart of death and out the other side unscathed and untouched so that even the greatest of all harms can harm us not. Now in David, we see then a shepherd. We see that he's already been anointed, so we see that he's a king, a shepherd, and a king, and a warrior fighting on behalf of the people. How much better typological description do you want from David of our Lord Jesus Christ? David is a shepherd. The Lord says, I am the good shepherd. David is the anointed king. Our Lord is anointed with the Holy Spirit, crowned with thorns, the king of sinners, victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And he is the champion who fights on our behalf, crushing the head of the serpent, uh, crushing the Goliath of hell uh, on our behalf, and thus winning for us the victory. So as we see David, we want to see a type and foreshadowing of Christ. Certainly that's true because the plan for Christ and the plan of the cross and the plan of the resurrection, the plan of the victory is already established by God. We can actually see Jesus, our king, our champion, our shepherd behind this text. And we can see this text reflecting who he is and who he will manifestly be uh, by way of the incarnation. All right, so then we left off with David, and rather humorously, again, just a youth, clothed in the king's armor. And, of course, this is contrary already in David's mind because it's the Lord who's going to give him the victory, not the king's armor. It's ironic that he's in Saul's armor. It's deeply ironic. Saul should be the one out there. Uh, David is clothed in Saul's armor. And this is important to keep in mind because in the chapters to come, there's some weirdness with clothes. There's Jonathan, Saul's son, stripping off his clothes. And then there's this really wild event coming up where Saul strips off his clothes. And what, what we want to see here in the stripping off of clothes really begins even in this theme where it's the stripping off of one's office. The clothes represent the office. This is the office of Israel's champion, and it has been taken off of Saul and put on David, even though David doesn't go forward with it. That's one of the things we need to see here. So where we left off, uh, chapter 17, verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. I mean, what we gather is simple enough. The armor's clunky. It doesn't work well. He's, he's never even maneuvered about or seen what he can do or not do in it. He feels completely uncomfortable and out of his element. It's beside the point anyway. He doesn't need anything from Saul, anything from man. He's going to rely entirely on God. So the end of verse 39, so David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand you know, again, um, in many of our cartoon depictions that we grew up with, there's no staff. But that staff is important because he defeats Goliath as a shepherd. He defeats Goliath as a shepherd. You know, it's, it's in our weakness that God's strength is made manifest. And so he, he doesn't meet Goliath warrior to warrior, but shepherd to warrior. 
And that really prefigures the incarnation where God doesn't simply go in his divine power head to head against Satan, but, but becomes incarnate and humbles himself, putting on the form of a servant. And as a, as a shepherd, as the good shepherd of wandering sheep, he faces the Goliath of hell. He faces Satan and all his power. So we don't want to miss this key point. He takes his staff in his hand, that's his, his shepherd's staff, and chose five smooth stones. Now, why doesn't it just say stones? You know, it's very intriguing. Whenever the Bible uses, uh, gives us details where we wouldn't need details, and particularly when, those, when, when the number or the detail involved uh, you know, might have an intriguing illusion. It's just so fascinating that this is woven in. I think most commonly, people who want to view this typologically see this as a reference to the Word of God. How so? The Torah, the five books of Moses, the five smooth stones. And you remember, you know, in terms of stone, those five books of Moses, the old covenant, in a sense, are all codified on the stone tablets. So the, you can see the themes of the Word of God and the stone and the five books and the five stones. And this is all, uh, I, think, I think symbolically these details are included so that we could typologically see that David is going to defeat Goliath with the Word of God. Now we've already pointed out this connection. Um, we are told back in verse 16 that it is 40 days that the Philistine is out taunting Israel. And we remember that our Lord Jesus, after you know, David is anointed, um, <laughs> and then we have that he goes to confront Goliath. Jesus is anointed in the waters of baptism, and the Spirit drives him in the wilderness to confront the Goliath of hell. And Likewise, just as Goliath was there for 40 days, so Jesus is, is there for 40 days, um, and then the battle with Satan. And of course, in the same way that David is going to use the five smooth stones against Goliath, we're going to see Jesus use the word of God, the, the, the word of God to defeat Satan. And so I think those parallels are in play, to be sure. He also takes, I mean, again, it's just so rich typologically because he takes these five smooth stones, not from just anywhere, but from the brook. So there's water connected, too, in the defeat of Satan. There's allusion to baptism here and to the power of water and God's word to conquer the devil. So these are smooth stones from the brook. And they're put not just in his power. I mean, look at these details in his shepherd's pouch. Again, the author drawing these attention, <laughs> their attention to these details. And here, by the author, I mean the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has included these wonderful, glorious details, this beautiful poetry, so that we would see Christ imaged here. So we have uh, five smooth stones from the brook, and he puts them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So the image is staff, sling, and the five smooth stones. And this, of course, is, is just such, you know, again, what weapons did Christ bring in his battle against, uh, against Goliath? Nothing but the word of God. And he stood before him as a shepherd. And that here imaged uh, in, in David. These aren't, the, these aren't the weapons of war. These are the weapons of a shepherd. And yet he's going to triumph. More on that as the narrative progresses. It's worth rereading just for the poetry, and I know others are even more elegant than the ESV, but this is one of the most beautiful and poetic parts of the Old Testament. So David put them off, that is the pieces of armor, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, 
he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Again, this is an acknowledgement on the part of Goliath that David isn't facing him with the weapons of war. David is simply facing him with shepherd's tools, with rocks and a sling and a shepherd's staff. As I said, emblematic of Christ, and then as we push into the New Testament of what Christ gives us, emblematic of us as well. We as Christians go out to fight the evil one, and we do so with, with nothing more than, than God's word. Again, not the weapons of war, but simply God's word. So I think that this is at least partly what's behind um, Paul saying in Romans very famously, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Well, why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Well, because the gospel in itself is the message of Christ crucified, of God killed for our forgiveness, that by his blood we might be cleansed from our sins. And furthermore, that's all you have is that word of the cross, and you're going to take that out against the devil and all his hordes, the, the evils of the world and all the, all the wickedness we see around us. That's it. Those are your weapons. And Paul says, I am not ashamed, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Here David is not ashamed to face the giant with his five smooth stones, his sling and staff. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Goliath taunts him. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So again, you see the theological implications of this battle. These are the satanic forces standing behind Goliath. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Again, as far as just beauty and poetry goes, you can hardly do better than this. The Lord saves, not with sword and spear. And how desperately we need to hear this as a church. And I don't merely mean as a congregation here at Faith, but the entire Christian church in the West. The Lord does not save with sword and spear. He does not save with those things that we think we need in order to gain victory. He does not save us from our enemies or grant us the victory because we have a lot of money or because we have a lot of political power or because we found the right way to market ourselves or because we have the right technology. These things that we see as essential for victory are not essential at all. What is essential is that the Lord give victory to us and through us, through whatever insufficient means we have. The very same thing is shown, of course, in the feeding of the 5,000 with the fish and the loaves. They're completely insufficient for the task, but the Lord makes them sufficient. And so instead of lamenting what we do not have, we need to, as David, uh, humble ourselves before the Lord, realize that it is God who grants the victory. So once more, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, 
for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So again, this needs to be our confidence, that the Lord, the, the victory is the Lord's, he will have it, he will take it, live or die, succeed or fail, or whatever other things we might uh, conceptualize this life and times as, we can be assured of this. In Christ, we have the victory. And so we ought to simply boldly proclaim the word of God and trust that that word is sufficient to defeat the devil and the satanic armies. All right, again, I commend this section to you simply because of its beauty and its poetry. It is worth reading and rereading over again. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. I, I mean, strategically, I don't know if the study note says it. No, it doesn't say it. Strategically, this may have surprised uh, Goliath just a bit. I mean, facing such a smaller, younger man, um, one might have expected him to be a bit skittish or dodgy or try to feel his way out. But David, not David, David charges directly toward the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. All right. So not to dwell on graphic details, but the Philistine's head is crushed. The very same promise given to Eve of what the Messiah would do. He would crush the serpent's head. Here David crushes the giant's head. And our Lord Jesus on the cross as well crushes, the, uh, crushes Goliath's head, the serpent's head, the dragon's head etc. So, very important detail here that his head is crushed. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. I mean, think of all of that size, all of that training, all of that talent, all of that weight and muscle, all of that armor, all of the expense and cost of that armor, the shield bearer, all of it. And it all fails to a single stone and a single sling. Now David doesn't even have a sword. But he's already said that he's going to cut off the head of the Philistine. That's back in, uh, what is it, verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And when David's saying those words, he doesn't even have a sword. You have to love it. He doesn't even have a sword, but he's certain he's going to cut off Goliath's head. So here we are reminded there, is, there was no sword in the hand of David, verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So I know that beautiful is probably the wrong word for this because in real life that's, uh, you know, that was hideous and gross. But beautiful in this sense that David slays Goliath with his own weapon. Typologically, I like to think of it, about it like this. Maybe this is just a little bit too clean. But where, where David is anointed and then goes to battle Goliath, Jesus is anointed in baptism and then goes into the desert. As David crushes his head with one of the five smooth stones, in the wilderness, Jesus crushes the devil's head with the smooth stones of God's word. And as David then goes forward to destroy Goliath with his own weapon, so Jesus goes forward to destroy Satan with his own weapon. In the case of Jesus, it's the cross. And you can see how even visually the cross looks like a sword stuck down into the earth. I remember I first had that thought sitting probably bored in, in the sanctuary as a, as a little kid and thinking, that thing looks just like a sword. And, and then just imagining, you know, in my mind, like immediately correcting myself and how inappropriate that was to think of that and, you know, 
But no, I was like, like that impulse was right. That was, the, that was the Holy Spirit. The sermon that day must have been on Goliath or something. But that's exactly right. The sword that, that Satan uses against Jesus, what, the, the instrument through which he's going to put Jesus to death, that, that upside down sword stuck into the earth, that cross, that's the very weapon that Jesus takes and turns in order to destroy sin, death, the power of the devil, cutting off his head forever. It's just incredible. It's just unimaginably beautiful and powerful and poignant. So, we cannot help but see that reality then that, that Jesus defeats the devil with his own weapon just as David defeats Goliath with his own weapon. All right. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. Now this, of course, David had foretold uh, back when he says, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines. I think this is still verse 46. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So that's the very thing that happens. Now, the purpose clause, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This victory of David over Goliath, the youth over the warrior, the sling over the sword and spear and javelin, the tale of this victory was to go out into all the earth so that they would know, all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel. And really the meaning and impact there is that there is the God in Israel. In other words, as David himself speaks, this was a salvific event. This was to be a sign so that all the peoples of the earth might see that the God of Israel is the true God, that the God of Israel can, in fact, deliver. And so, you know, th this, of course, parallels the cross. As Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And in his victory over, over Satan, in the wilderness, with the word, on the cross, with Satan's own sword, in Jesus' victory, then, it is to be proclaimed throughout all the earth, so that all the earth will know that this Jesus is God, and that he can deliver us from our enemies. And so both events, then, are meant for uh, the spreading of the gospel, the spreading of the truth of God. So we see this too. Now, verse 53, the people of Israel then came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, I'm going to refer you to the study note here because this is a little bit confusing, or at least there are some things to think about here. Now, the study note points out, although Jerusalem was not yet a part of Israel, David displayed Goliath's head there as a warning to its inhabitants. He put Jerusalem on notice that it too would be defeated. So quite a bit of symbolism there as well, not only in the moment where, where David, you know, um, takes the head to Jerusalem to warn the enemies of God's people that Jerusalem would fall, that Jerusalem would eventually be Israel's capital city uh, and, and the seat of the throne of David. Uh, but this is, this is very much like Christ who slays Satan on the cross outside of Jerusalem and the head of Satan is presented to Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is below will be conquered and Jerusalem that is above 
thinking of the Pauline references, and I'm thinking of the last chapter of Revelation. Jerusalem that is above descends and becomes the capital of the new heavens and the new earth, the seat of David's son and David's Lord. So all of that is worked and sewn and, and woven in these verses by the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, what else from that study note? Yes, the reference to the tent. Where does David's tent suddenly show up? We don't, he put his armor in his tent, you know. What's going on there? Does he, does he suddenly have a tent? Is, that, is he given a tent later? Does he somehow return home? Um, is it possibly even back in the tent of Saul? Though that doesn't seem to be the case. So let's look at the study note. Um, these events happened after verses 55 through 58, uh, as verse 57 makes clear. So uh, take a look at this then again. Verse 55, um, well, I should say verse 54, David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And then verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, uh, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Okay, so it was only later that he took the head to Jerusalem. Perhaps he had been given a tent uh, during that time frame. Verse 58, And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So again, you can see how chronologically uh, that episode that we looked at earlier where David is brought in to, to play to Saul to relieve him from the evil spirit, chronologically that event probably takes place after David and Goliath. It's just simply the author has decided to trump the chronology uh, for the purposes of juxtaposing the Spirit leaving Saul, the, the Holy Spirit leaving Saul, coming upon David, and an unholy spirit entering into Saul. Those themes, uh, the transfer of the kingship. Okay, let's see if there is uh, anything else here. Yes, the study note on verse 1755 says, David was not permanently at Saul's court. Saul had taken little note of David's family. Saul's unstable mental condition may have affected his memory. Um, yeah. Trying to, I mean, that's another possible way to make sense of these events, is that if, if it is chronological in some way, Maybe, I don't know that it is, but if it is, maybe that's what you'd point to, that Saul's confused by the evil spirit. Well, let's, uh, <laughs> let's move on. This is quite the scene, and again, just worth dwelling on and rereading and meditating on because no doubt, uh, no doubt I've left details and aspects out that are of profound importance, but you know that's how God's word is. There's no such thing as, as exhausting it. So this episode, needless to say, uh, brings David some fame. And that is, uh, of course, according to God's plan, although David himself would probably have preferred not to have it. Let's look into chapter 18 and uh, one of the first of these odd stripping off of clothes. Take a look at that meaning. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Uh, the Hebrew word for knit there is a little unusual. It's, it's also used in Genesis 44.30, the study note is showing us, to express Jacob's love uh, for his son Benjamin. I mean, the unfortunate fact is um, 
In our day and age, some of the LGBT folks have tried to read here some sort of homosexual relationship. I think I first heard it on the History Channel, that great bastion of the theological wisdom. Uh, it's just, it's nonsense. I mean, the, the language here is, uh, is obviously the language of friendship. It's the language of kinship. It's the language of covenant, um, that kind of thing. But there's, there's, no, um, there's actually no implication whatsoever of homosexuality here. And in fact, this word, you know, of their souls being knit together, that is not the husband and a wife. That is Jacob for Benjamin. That's the way in which... Uh, David and Jonathan love one another, not as father and son in this case, but as uh, brothers. Um, so this language of loved is sometimes used for covenant uh, relationship and possibly even possesses political overtones. As the study note continues to point out, it is never used of homosexual desire or activity. This, this word for love, never used for homosexual desire or activity in the scriptures. Um, the Old Testament uses the verb to know for sexual activity. And that is obviously not the word used here. The fact that Saul too loved David, chapter 16, verse 21, prepares us for the later political use of the verb love. So here too, the political overtones, and you're going to see that in the stripping off of the garments. What's going on here is nothing homosexual. What's going on here is a political right. All right, so uh, just picking back up where we left off. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. There's the covenantal language. Because he loved him as his own soul. And here's the covenant slash political right. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Now again, this is just the outer robe. There's nothing lewd going on here. But what is going on? Well, the same thing I pointed out, when Saul puts his armor on David, you are the office bearer, you are the champion of the Lord's army, now Jonathan is doing. Jonathan, who is going to be heir to the throne, Jonathan, who is going to be the one who follows Saul to sit on the throne, is divesting himself of that office and conferring that office upon David through this rite, where he takes off his robe, puts it on David, and his armor, just as Saul put his armor on David, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. In other words, everything, that, the entire office that belongs to me, I am now bestowing upon you. You are heir to the throne. I, I, Jonathan, am your servant. So once more, as we've seen Jonathan before, Jonathan is very faithful to the Lord, zealous for the Lord, stands out amongst the people. It is, though, though I don't recall a specific place in the text, I think it would be fair and safe to assume that Jonathan even understands that David has been anointed by Samuel and that David is to be the one. So, you know, again, whether that's true or not, it's certainly true here in his behavior that there's an acknowledgement that, that David is to be the king and Jonathan is not going to stand in his way. Rather, Jonathan is going to be his ally. Verse 5, And David went out and was successful, wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And there's a loaded verse, as we're going to find unfolding in the verses to come. And wherever Saul sent him, Saul sent him a lot of places uh, where he might die. In fact, um, you know, when, when David falls to the depths of his own sinfulness and sends out Uriah to die, he's probably taking a page from Saul and the very page that was played against him. Um, by Saul, countless times, Saul sends him out into the most dangerous places so that David will die. And instead of dying because the Lord is with him, David prevails, which only serves to make him uh, even more appealing in the eyes of the people, even more popular in Israel. Okay, so a bit of foreshadowing. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. 
And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, how's that going to go over <laughs> to the great egotist Saul, who built a statue and monument to himself uh, for a victory he didn't win? Yeah, this isn't going to go well. So, I mean, the irony here is just, it's almost too rich to put into words. Saul, the one who should have fought and been the champion, doesn't. He cowers back, sends out a boy to do his job. The boy does his job. Then upon returning, Saul wants to be worshipped and praised above the boy, and obviously he isn't. The boy is praised above him, and rightfully so. I mean, it's just the irony is so rich you can hardly even take it. Well, you can see here in the verses some hyperbole. This is just very common to, to I think it's common, period. Uh, but certainly this period um, and this geography, um, Saul likely hadn't struck down thousands, unless you're talking about indirectly through his armies. David certainly hadn't struck down ten thousands at this point in time. Uh, but be that as it may, they're singing of their military prowess. Poetic hyperbole. Verse 8, And Saul was very angry. <laughs> And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. In other words, David became a rival. Um, he already was. He was already the one to supplant Saul, but Saul, didn't, Saul wasn't particularly threatened by that up until this point. And then the irony here, too, is that as Saul tries to diminish David and even put an end to David, it only serves to make David all the more uh, superior to Saul, uh, not only objectively, but then also in the eyes of the people. Okay, so that, that high moment, uh, that high point in, in Israel's life didn't last long because Saul has already tainted it once more. Again, considering, consider the long-suffering nature of the Lord that he continues to endure Saul and Saul's wickedness all throughout, this, uh, all throughout these episodes. It's, it's easy to overlook, um, but we certainly shouldn't, that this is a testament to the Lord's patience. Um, and I think, I think to, some, to some extent, his, I don't think I'm overstepping here, that the Lord would hope that even though, even though the, the deal's done, that Saul's going to lose the kingdom, that Saul might personally repent personally come to his senses, humble himself before the Lord and, um, you know, and be saved and have that relationship with the Lord where, where he, has, he has the Lord and he has life. Um, but Saul exhibits none of that and exhibits a stubbornness against the Lord in, in every way. All right, verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God. Of course, we discussed this at length um, back in chapter 17, so I'm not going to do this again. Uh, but yeah, the, the harmful spirit from God rushes upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. I mean, the picture here is just you know, seething with rage, raving, out of his mind with anger and jealousy, fuming, frothing. That's kind of the picture here. David's playing the lyre. Remember which previously David's playing was described in such a way that, um, you know, the the harmful spirit would depart, that Saul would, be, would have relief and healing when David was playing. David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Again, here we see God's hand, because there's no, there's no reason why he should have escaped with his life, you know crying out loud, you're distracted playing an instrument and some maniac has a spear behind you. I mean, how could you, how could you be spared? But he was spared and evaded him twice. So this too, the Lord's hand. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. 
And again, Saul does the exact opposite thing you should do. If, if you realize that God has departed from you, you should confess your sins and be absolved, be reconciled to God. Um, Saul, Saul does none of that, of course. Verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. Which David was the only one giving Saul, was the only one giving Saul relief from this evil spirit by the playing of his music. So in his hatred for David, he ends up punishing himself. And that's so true. I don't need to make a sermonic point on that. You know exactly how that is, you know, in your own heart, in your own soul, maybe just from your past, maybe even from your present how hating someone ends up hurting you. And here we have that with Saul. He so hates David, he casts out his only relief. And he casts him out, making him a commander of thousands. And as we'll see, the point of that is to put David in harm's way. Continuing midway through verse 13, and he went out and came in before the people, which I think is just a way of saying um, the people notice his coming and his going. He's a He's a bit of a celebrity. He's a bit of a champion of the people. Verse 14, And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Echo of verse 12, that this isn't David's own success, as if there was such a thing. Um, the Lord is with him, and so David has success. And that's why, by the way, wherever we have success, we have to give credit to God. It's not our doing. And we pray, too, that God would prosper the work of our hands, because no matter how hard we work or how hard we try or how, however creative or brave or persistent we are, uh, it's God who gives success or we have no success. All good things come from the hand of God. David was blessed and had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Which, you know, he's a, he's a man of the people, and he's popular because of his military prowess. In many respects, he's, every, he's everything Saul isn't. He's also spiritual faithful. Saul is, uh, is none of those things, unfortunately. All right, verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Yeah, now this is interesting. It just triggered something in my mind. I should have looked at this beforehand. Um, but it triggered something in my mind. It wasn't the promise given by Saul that whoever kills the giant... Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it is. Chapter 17, verse 25. They're talking about Goliath. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king, Saul, will enrich the man who kills him, kills Goliath, with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done? And they respond the same. You know, I think that the redundancy there especially is meant to demonstrate that Saul really doesn't follow through on his word. In fact, Saul treats, uh, treats David like scum. And then, and then maybe, maybe, maybe in 17, verse 17, chapter 18 here, is, uh, is Saul finally kind of coming through with that promise of the daughter. But you're going to see like just how ironic this is and how cynical and nasty because it's a trap. I mean, that which should have been the reward is just a trap. So you can, I mean, again, if you're like, if you're having sympathy for Saul here, you're probably reading the text wrong. This is a nasty guy. So verse 17, Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Which sounds so pious, doesn't it? But it's not. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. 
Saul realizes that if, if he's against David, A, he might lose. B, even if he wins, he's going to lose the love of the people. So it's a lose-lose proposition. Let not my hand be against him, but let the Philistines kill him. Again, this is why I said David probably took a page out of his book um, when, when David hits his low point. But David, of course, repents and returns to the Lord at the, at the prophet's voice, Nathan's voice, whereas Saul does not repent and turn to the Lord at at the prophet's voice, at Samuel's voice. So you've got anti-types here. You've got, a, you've got the difference between Judas, who betrays Jesus and, and does not repent, repents in the way of Cain, and, and does not receive the Lord's forgiveness, and thus kills himself, versus Peter, who also betrays the Lord, but repents with a genuine repentance and receives the Lord's forgiveness and is restored. You have two betrayers, two different kinds. And embodied in, in Peter and Judas is really the whole human race. Um, where we've all betrayed our maker. We've all betrayed the Lord with our many, many grievous sins. And yet there's two responses. That's it. It's binary. You either respond in despair, as in self-righteous despair as uh, Judas, or in repentance and receiving the Lord's forgiveness as Peter. And then the same thing is true here. Um, by way of type, with Saul and David. I mean, they both fall to the depths. Saul impenitently so, David penitently so. And thus, Saul is a, you know, is a villain and David is a hero. And so we too, we too find our place um, as those who have fallen to the depths of sin. And uh, that's, that's what sets before us, to repent and be like David and Peter, or rather to be uh, impenitent and be like Judas and Saul. We find these, these types throughout all of scriptures, by the way. I've just selected two, but these types are run all the way through the scriptures. It's just one or the other, one or the other. Who are you? Okay, so Saul, is, uh, Saul is, is plotting and planning. Let not my hand be against him. Let the Philistines be against him. Verse 18, David is smart and knows something is up. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? Uh, the study note points this out. This is great. David sees Saul's political agenda clearly and responds modestly. You know, again, like, like, like all evil masterminds, Saul has various avenues here. He's, he's pretending on the one hand to give David his daughter, I love you, then he's going to send him out onto the front lines to die, right? So he's got this plausible deniability thing going on. Um, if, it, if, if, that, if plan A doesn't work out, where David's killed in battle, and he's sort of forced into giving over his daughter, well, now David is, uh, is an ally. You keep your friends close and your enemies closer. But of course, Saul has no intention of doing that. Um, that would really, in fact, be plan C, because plan B is if David doesn't die, Saul's going to betray him through Merab. And so let's take a look at that. Uh, David says to Saul, who am I? You know, I, he's kind of demurring. <laughs> uh, verse 19, but at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the, Meho the Meholothite, easy for you to say, for a wife. So this is a really nasty thing. Again, the implication seems to be, David, I love you so much that I'm going to give you, you know, my eldest daughter. Now go out and do a bunch of really super dangerous battles for me. Uh, an attempt to trick and deceive David and the people. Well, David doesn't die, and so Saul says, okay, well, sorry, I've given my eldest daughter to another man. And so... Uh, spites David uh, in that way. All right, let's see if there's anything else here. 19. Yeah, in order to humiliate David, Saul gives Merib, so die or be humiliated. You know, really nice. Of course, David sniffs what's up. That's, that's indicated here in David's language. All right, nothing you can do about that, so he's humiliated. Well, People can humiliate you. You can't control that. Just remain faithful. 
All right, verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. So this is great because you have, you have Jonathan, and, you, and I say Michael. It's probably Michal, but I just I learned it as Michael, so you've got to bear with me. Sorry. Uh, I have an aunt, Michael, so that's probably my bias. Uh, it's probably Michal. Anyway, what you have is uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, and they both love David more than their dad, at least at this point. At least at this point. And so, so there's, uh, there's some irony here. And the study note, I think, points that out, too, if I'm not mistaken. Michael's love for David parallels Jonathan's and may have the same covenant connotations. Um, that is to say, political connotations. Um, she recognizes that David is to be the king, not her father, and so she's pledging her loyalty to David. Uh, that, in fact, that may be a much more accurate read than actually viewing here the Western notion of love, um, which is affections, emotions. No, it's, this is actions and uh, relationship in the proper sense, right? Positioning, social positioning. Uh, so... so uh, be that as it may, verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Well, Saul, <laughs> the thing pleased him because he's got plans, you know, he's got devious plans. Verse 21, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, a trap for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So again, round two with his daughters. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. I mean, could you imagine, David, like what kind of gritted teeth you'd have? Verse 22, and Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, which of course David's going to see right through. And this is just lies, just lies. And all his servants love you. And again, that love probably isn't affection as much as it is like respect you, acknowledge you, you know, see, po seek political alliance with you. That's probably much more the sense of love in these passages. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. So in other words, <laughs> they're pressuring David, who no doubt is going to be skeptical after, the, after he's been quote-unquote humiliated before, at least manipulated uh, by, by Saul before. Verse 23, and Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? Again, David demurring, David you know, stepping back, being very, very polite and humble and respectful, but not exactly saying, oh joy, let me jump into this trap. Verse 24, and the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price. Look at how dishonest this is. Except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Okay, no bride price other than you go like on this dangerous mission to go slaughter a uh, hundred Philistines um, by yourself. Conjuring up images, by the way, of uh, Samson course, in the past with the, with the business with the foreskins and the Philistines. Um, yeah, so bride price, the study note points this out. This is paid to the bride's father as compensation for her loss and as insurance for her support if she were widowed. So that's the social purpose of this bride price that was uh, paid at the time, as if the king needs a bride price, but he's going to collect anyway. So... Yeah, very gracious. The king desires no bride price except this very outrageous bride price, which I think, you know, I'm not sure I even read this in the study notes, but I think that this traps David a bit because David can't say no or he's rejected the king's daughter and he's rejected the king. So he has to say yes and he has to put himself in harm's way. I think that that's really the sense of this. All right, so the bride price is 104 skins of the Philistines that he, that is Saul, may be avenged of the king's enemies. Um, so David's got to do Saul's dirty work once again. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. See, that was his plan. And when his servants told David these words, 
it pleased David, David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. So he does double what he's asked. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, again, double, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter uh, Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, again, this is not necessarily affection, Saul was even more afraid of David. Look, my own family is turning against me. Look, I send him out to fight a hundred, which he by no means can do. Instead, he kills 200 and brings them back. Obviously, he's got the prowess of the inner, like, I mean, the love of the inner court. They're all admiring him. And the love of the people, they're all admiring him. Increasingly, Saul is isolated and on his own. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Well, I know we're out of time. Let me read one more verse just to get us through the chapter. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Well, all of this is, on the one hand, great for David. On the other hand, not so great for David, because it further enrages this manipulative, sadistic, king who is hell-bent on offing David. So, on that bright and cheery note, uh, we've concluded chapter 18. Let's pick up on chapter 19 next week. The Lord be with you.